Well, good morning. Uh, if I've not had a chance to meet you, my name is Aaron, uh, lead pastor for Riverwood. And if you were not with us last Sunday, that's what we got to enjoy. Uh, at the end of our service, Toby came up here and shared his, his testimony. And then we went down to the river and it was just a great, great day. Uh, when you walked in, uh, hopefully you got one of our handouts. Anthony, if you want to bring the lights up, uh, inside of there is a connection card. Uh, on that connection card, you notice that there's a space at the top. Our church family fills that out every week. But uh, if you're a first-time guest and are willing to fill out that lower portion, what we do is we donate $5 to Compassion International for every single first-time guest that fills that out. Uh, Compassion is an organization that has a goal of releasing children from poverty in Jesus' name. They work through local churches all around the world where kids can get uh, food, they can get an education, but most of all, these kids get to hear what Jesus did for them on the cross. And so because that is who we are as a church, this is what we are all about. You're going to hear it yet again today. Uh, we would love to just bless the life of a child somewhere around the world. So if you're comfortable to, to fill that card out, do so sometime this morning and then just drop it inside uh, the a giving box on your uh, way out. Uh, and if you're giving today to help fuel the mission that God has given us, thank you. You can uh, drop those in the box as well, or you can give online or via text as you see there in your uh, handout. Uh, the one announcement that I want to draw your attention to in that handout is the very top left one. We've had, we had a blast. Oh yeah, kids, get out of here. I'm sorry, I'm boring you. Go, go, go. Right, I know you kids love me, but not that much. Yeah, but kids, you don't get to have brunch with us. Actually, that's not true. Uh, so the one announcement I want to uh, make sure that you really see is on October 8th, immediately after our worship gathering, we're going to have a potluck brunch. So bring something breakfasty or lunchy, uh, whatever you want to, to share. We're not going to divvy it up between main dishes and, and uh, whatever, just bring something to share. Uh, we're just set up a bunch of tables out in the lobby and we're just going to hang out and enjoy one another's company as we enjoy some food. So again, that'll be on Sunday, October 8th. All right, if you brought a Bible, I'm going to invite you to open it up to Acts chapter 8. Open up to Acts chapter 8. If you didn't bring a Bible, we will be putting uh, most of the scripture on the screen uh, so you can read along with us. Uh, but if you have a Bible on your phone, totally feel free to pull that out and use that this morning. Uh, if you would like to get your own Bible, a paper copy, we have some on our resource table. Feel free to stop by there uh, on your way out uh, today and take one of those and make that our gift to you. Uh, uh, last week, we kicked off uh, a little mini-series called Changed. We've been studying the book of Acts this year, and we're going to continue. But when we came to Acts chapter 8 and 9, we see three individuals changed by the gospel. And so we're doing this little sub-series within the broader series called Changed. Last week, we had the opportunity to hear the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. But to understand the Ethiopian eunuch's story, we needed to meet Philip. Uh, Philip was one of the very first deacons of the early church. In chapter 6, we, we met him along with Stephen and some other guys who were tasked with this ministry of overseeing distribution of food to widows. Uh, some of the widows were, were not receiving food simply because of their kind of racial background. This was a, a situation of racism and discrimination. And, and so they tasked these deacons to make sure everyone got food because everyone matters to God. Philip was one of those guys. Well, at the beginning of chapter 8, we see a tremendous uh, persecution break out upon the church. At the beginning of chapter 8, the, the church there in Jerusalem is probably over 5,000, approaching 6,000 people. I mean, we're talking a mega church. And yet, overnight, when this persecution breaks out, almost all of them flee. There's probably just, you know, a few dozen people that remained in Jerusalem, some of which were the apostles. Philip was one of those guys that fled for his life. 
he ends up going to Samaria. Now, what you need to know about Samaria is that it was a region just kind of north of Jerusalem and the, the main area of Judea. But the people there were only half Jewish. And under Old Testament law, you were supposed to uh, remain racially pure as a Jew. You weren't supposed to marry people from other races, other nations, other religions. And so for the Samaritans to not be pure made the regular Jews look down upon them. Another issue of discrimination. So they would often avoid them. Jesus, though, did not avoid them. During Jesus' ministry, we see his love for them. In John chapter 4, Jesus intentionally goes through the region of Samaria. While there, sends his disciples into the city while he stays outside because he knows there's going to be this woman who's going to walk out to the well in the middle of the day to get water. Most women would get their water from the, from the well early in the morning. It became like a, a meeting place. She didn't want to meet anyone because she was the outcast of the city. She had been married five times, which was a big no-no in that day. And she was living with a guy who wasn't her husband. That was an even bigger no-no in that day. And yet Jesus has a conversation with her. And it's to this woman that Jesus first reveals himself as the Messiah. So he loved Samaritans. And so that's why it shouldn't have been a surprise when in Acts 1-8, when he gives the mandate to the church, he says, I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so when Philip is fleeing for his life, he finds himself in Samaria, a region that Jesus loves. And while there, he begins to explain the gospel. Some of these people knew the story of Jesus. He'd spent time in Samaria. They knew he was the Messiah. And then they hear he dies on a cross, but rises from the dead. And they are ready to fully commit their lives to him. And revival breaks out. But then what we saw was that God calls Philip away from Samaria. He ended up going out to the desert. We took a moment to just consider, like, how crazy is that? That you're in this city, you're seeing lives being changed, and suddenly God's like, no, now I want you to go to the desert where no one is. And yet we saw this chance meeting between Philip and this government official from what they knew as Ethiopia. It would be about modern-day Sudan. This was a government official. He was the treasurer for the, the queen's kingdom. He was, a, he was a powerful, rich, influential man. And yet he was also seeking after God. And God just happened to bring Philip up alongside his chariot where he just happened to hear the guy reading from Isaiah 53, which just happens to be a passage all about Jesus. And the Ethiopian eunuch hears it, puts his faith in Christ, sees water and says, why should I not? be baptized. Now the reason we went to that story is because it's the prototypical Christian story. Today's story is going to take place back in Samaria. We're, we're going to actually go back in time a little bit. But the, I wanted to jump ahead because the story of the Ethiopian eunuch is, is so often the kind of story we hear when we hear about people being changed by the gospel. Someone is seeking after God they hear the gospel, they realize it's true, they commit their life to Christ, and to show this, they end up, you know, being baptized. For some of you, that's your story. Maybe it's because you were a little kid, and you were going to church, and you're hearing all these things, so you start asking questions, and you put your faith in Jesus. Kind of like what we experienced with Toby. You know, he, he was seeking, asking, and, and in March, he, he put his faith in, in Christ. And last week, he was baptized. Some of you here today, that's not your story. 
Your story's messier. You, you know the, the gospel. You, you know Jesus died on the cross for your sins. You know he died to change you. And yet, you know there are areas of your life that still seem unchanged. And that struggle has caused you to doubt yourself, to doubt God. It's caused struggle in relationships. It's caused all sorts of issues. So you hear stories like the Ethiopian eunuch, and you're thinking, that's not me. That's why today we go back and we pick up this story. Because this story is for you. And we see it here in Acts 8. So as we get ready to, to lean in and ask God to speak to us, let's pray. So Heavenly Father, this is what I ask. That this would go beyond anything that I have prepared to say. That this would be about what you want to say, need to say. You've been saying these things through your scripture to people for generations. And yet it is on this Sunday, in this place, in this avenue, that you're going to speak to someone. And so I pray you'd open their heart, you'd open their mind. You'd let them see that even though they continue to struggle with these besetting sins, you have not abandoned them, you've not given up on them, you still love them, and you can still change them. And so Father... Open these things up to us as we open up your scripture. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you have your Bible open there to Acts 8, join me at verse 9. Acts 8, starting in verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great wonders performed, he was amazed. Our uh, main character today is this guy named Simon. Throughout uh, Christendom, uh, many people have just kind of nicknamed him Simon the Sorcerer. He had worked as a magician for years. Now, there's question on whether or not the magic he was performing were like our magicians of today, where it's just really illusions, or if he truly was performing some sort of supernatural act. If he was, it would have been done by the power of Satan. He, it, these are not divine miracles from God and his power. This is him dipping into the realm of darkness spiritually and somehow using that to therefore gain influence. And it was working. Did you notice they gave him a name? They were calling him the great power of God. He was gaining this like power over the people so that they would think he was great. But then Philip shows up. And Philip does things very differently. Yeah, he's doing magic, but it's not like Simon's magic. Like people are actually being healed. Demons are being kicked out of people's lives. It, there's something different about it. And everybody notices. And also, when, when Philip shows up, he, he basically says, oh, oh, I'm not great. God is great. Simon was using magic so the people would pay attention to him. Philip uses miracles so people would pay attention to God. Now, there, there clearly was something different between their magic. 
Any of you seen the uh, show uh, Penn and Teller's Fool Us? No? Okay. I, I've, I've never seen an episode. I've only seen some clips on uh, YouTube. Uh, YouTube thinks I must really, really want to watch these because it keeps bringing them up. And it's like, I watched like two or three episodes. Come on. Um, but uh, Penn and Teller are fairly famous magicians in and of themselves. And they created this show where they invite magicians to come on stage before them and a, a live studio audience where they perform a magic trick. But the whole goal is for the magician to fool Penn and Teller. But because they've been doing magic for so long, most of the time a trick is done, and usually it's a, a trick of the magician's own creation. And Penn and Teller put their heads together and they talk a little bit, and then they'll look at the guy and say, hey, we're, we think you might be doing this, and they speak in code so other people can't figure it out, but they speak in just enough where the magician's going, yeah, yeah, you, you know how it was done, you're right, yeah, that's how it was done. And everyone just gives a nice polite applause and they, they go off. But every once in a while, someone walks on that stage, performs a trick, and Penn and Teller ask all these questions, and you start realizing they don't know how it's done. They sometimes come up on the stage, and they'll, like, touch things and ask them other questions, and eventually they look at them and say, you beat us. You've fooled us. And a trophy comes down, and everyone gives a big applause, you know, kind of like the golden buzzer in American Idol, and he walks off a winner. In our story today, Simon is pin and teller. He's been doing magic. He knows how these tricks are done. And yet suddenly he sees Philip performing true miracles. He's like, how'd you do that? But he's not just fooled. He's impressed. So much so that he actually begins to listen in. Here's what Philip is preaching. And it says in verse 13 that he believes and is baptized. Now, if the story ended right there, the story would sound much like the Ethiopian eunuch story. The gospel has come to him. He's heard it. He's believed. He's baptized. Nice, happy ending, and they all lived happily after, ever after. So, you know, start the music, roll the credits, story done. But as I said, this story is messier. That's what we see in the second paragraph. Pick it up in verse 14. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he, the Holy Spirit, had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they, meaning Peter and John, laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. When the persecution broke out in the beginning of chapter 8, I, I said that most of the church fled. Some of those that did not flee were the apostles. The, the 12 apostles remained in Jerusalem. So some way, somehow, word has gotten back to Jerusalem that revival has broken out in Samaria. 
And you can imagine their excitement. They were there on that mountaintop in Acts 1 when Jesus says, be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. And now they're getting word that it's happening. And so in their excitement, they send Peter and John down to go and see it for themselves so that they might bring word back and go, yes, what we heard is true. It's just that when they get there, they begin to discover that while the people have put their faith in Jesus, it seems they don't fully understand that God is a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they haven't seemed to exhibit, they, they understand the Holy Spirit and haven't truly received the Holy Spirit. And so Peter and John simply begin to lay hands on the people, pray for them, and it says that they receive the Spirit. Now Luke does not explain this much to us. And so we kind of have to make a couple of assumptions. When, when Jesus gave his mandate in Acts 1.8, saying, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and ends of the earth, right before that he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. This, this being witnesses, this living for, for God, was to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Jesus to his disciples said that when he ascends to heaven, the spirit would be the one who would give them the words to say. The, the spirit would be the one who would bond them in unity. The spirit would be the one that would give them the power to live the Christian life. And yet somehow Peter and John show up in, here in Samaria and while there's excitement about Jesus and his resurrection, they, they aren't seeing the same power. They haven't seemed to receive what the disciples did in Acts 2. Most likely, this means that the people hadn't spoken in tongues. Now, I, I realize that for some of you, this brings up a lot of questions. Some of you are going, oh, yeah, great, Aaron, preach it. Others of you are going, whoa, okay, this is getting a little uncomfortable. This is weird. I want you to be able to ask your questions. But we're not going to answer that question today. Because I think there's something really, really important we need to see. And if we get sidetracked by on, well, what is this speaking in tongues and how did this all happen? We're going to miss the point that God has for us. So ask your question. If you want, ask me afterwards or, or write it on your connection card or, or send me an email this week. Your, your questions are good. Never be afraid to ask questions. I think God can handle them. But I don't want us to get sidetracked and distracted. Because there's something very important in Simon's story that some of you need to hear. I want you to look at Simon's response. He sees Peter and John laying their hands on people, praying for them, and somehow there's indication they're receiving the Spirit. Most likely they're beginning to praise God in these other languages. And he says to them, now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Spirit. Simon, you have to remember, had lived years as a magician. And he was using that position, that this, this ability to gain influence. So people would think he was great, that he was something. So this is how he thought for so long. Now he's heard the gospel. He saw Philip's miracles. He's believed in the resurrection. He's been baptized. And yet he slips back into old patterns of thinking. When a magician saw another magician perform some sort of miracle, magic, and they didn't know how it was done, they offered money 
to gain the knowledge. It'd be like buying a book or hiring a consultant. And so all he's doing is doing what he's done before. He is simply trying to, to gain this power. But he doesn't know that you cannot buy God. The Spirit is not for sale. That is why Peter gives him such a stiff rebuke. Let's look at it again, verse 20. Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Man, what great insults, by the way. Don't you just want to like leave here going, I can see you are in the gall of, you know, no. We're going to talk about that here in just a moment. Um, there is some debate on uh, whether or not at this point in the story, Simon truly is a follower of Jesus. Uh, some people would say, well, no, he's not. You kind of can see it based on Peter's words. Others would say, well, no, I, I think he is. I, I used to fall in the, the uh, former category. I used to believe that he was not a believer. Uh, but my mind began to change a few years ago when I created my own little kind of Bible reading program. Uh, when, when Leanne and I felt God on this you know, journey to begin planting a church, this is, you know, man, 15 years ago, I came up with my own little uh, Bible reading plan. And, and I, I only did it for about two years. Haven't done it for a while. But what I would do is I would read one chapter in the, the Gospels, one chapter in Acts, and one chapter in the Epistles every day. So three chapters, Gospel, Acts, Epistles. So what that meant is for the book of Acts, it's only 28 chapters. So I was reading the book of Acts basically every single month. And so every month, I'm hearing Simon's story. And as I would read his story every month, I began to see things a bit differently. For instance, in verse 13, Luke says, even Simon himself believed. I realized that my argument that he was a charlatan, that he's a fake, that, that God's using Peter to expose his falsity, that I was not taking verse 13 seriously. Luke seems to believe Simon believed. And so if God had Luke write that, then I needed to believe that Simon truly understood the gospel. That was the first thing that began to change my mind. The second was down there in verse 19. When Simon says, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit, I think there's a part of him that is wanting to do good. I mean, Jesus came to bless us and now we're to follow Christ, so we should be a blessing to others. And what better blessing than to be able to pray for people and they receive the power of the Holy Spirit. So I think he has these good intentions. It's just that so often for so many of us, our good intentions are also mixed with selfish intentions. I remember years ago when I was the uh, young adult pastor at the church in Cedar Rapids, uh, I, I oversaw several different young adult groups. One that was mostly singles, few married couples. Uh, one of the, the single guys in there, he just became really, really passionate about starting a ministry to single moms. 
And I mean, he had a great biblical case for it. He was arguing how, you know, single moms are kind of like the widows in, in, uh, of our day. You know, widows back in biblical times, they were unprotected and kind of, you know, in our day and age, same for single moms. And, and their kids are a little bit like orphans. They don't have a dad in their life. And he was arguing that we as the church then, we need to step in there. And, and he was totally right. I believe the church should be the place that supports and bears the burdens of single moms. But as good as his intentions were, there were some selfish intentions. Because it turns out that our group had one single mom. And this one single mom was a very attractive woman. You could see it in the eyes of many of the guys in the group. And you could definitely see it in this guy. Yeah, he had good intentions. But he also hoped she would see the effort he's making to help provide for her. He must be a really kind guy. And it worked. They started dating and they're now married. But once they started dating, his passion for single ministry kind of went away. He had good intentions, but there was selfishness in there. I think Simon has really good intentions. He wants to be able to give the Holy Spirit to people. And yet, he also wants the attention. He wants the power. He wants the position. That is why Peter says, you are in the gall of bitterness. That is an idiom for envy. He's envious. Think about how he used to use his magic. It was to gain influence for people to think he was great. Now he's seen Peter and John and how God's working through them and he thinks they are great. And so, yeah, he's got good intentions, but inside there, he would like to have what they have. It's just he doesn't want to go through what they've been through. They went three years with Jesus. They saw Jesus crucified. They have been persecuted by the religious leaders. They've been through some really hard stuff. He doesn't want to go through all that. He just wants the power now. And he slips back into old patterns of thinking, offering them money, just doing what any magician of his day did. But that's what got him the strong rebuke. But then there's one more thing that convinces me. That, that Simon isn't the evil guy I used to think he was. And that's his response to the rebuke. Look at verse 24. After hearing this, this harsh rebuke from Peter, Simon responds, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. To me, that sounds like a plea. And not just, I want to avoid the consequences. It sounds to me like someone saying, I want to do it right but I'm so new at this. I don't know how. It, it, it reminds me, it seems to like have echoes of the dad in Mark chapter nine. In Mark nine, there's this dad who has a son who's aff afflicted by seizures and they, they attribute it to demons. And so he brings his son before Jesus. And as they're there, the son goes into a seizure and the dad's like, help him if you can. And Jesus kind of looks at him and goes, if I can? Don't you know who you're talking to? Like, I, I'm, I'm the son of God. I have all power. I, yes, I can heal him. But the dad has probably taken his son to so many doctors, so many religious leaders, probably had so many prayer meetings. Nothing has seemed to work. And so he's desperately trying. I, I believe this might work. And yet I don't want to get disappointed again. And he cries out, I believe. Help my unbelief. Simon here, I think, is basically saying, I believe. I believe that Jesus died on a cross. I believe he rose again from the dead. I believe there is a God above. 
I want to leave that other life behind, but it's been so ingrained in my thinking. I don't know how to shake this. So pray for me that what you've said won't come true because I want to change. Some of you, you are really understanding Simon in this moment. Because you don't have the nice, cool story of the Ethiopian eunuch. You have the messy story of Simon. You know the gospel. Maybe you've even been baptized. And yet there are still parts of your life that just seem unchanged. And you have been battling and struggling. And there's a part of you that wonders, maybe God's just given up on me. Maybe he doesn't love me. Maybe I'm not even really a Christian at all. So I need you to hear two things today out of Simon's story. The first that you need to hear is that God does not want you trapped. He does not want you trapped by patterns of lying. He doesn't want you trapped in your addiction. He doesn't want you trapped by fear. He doesn't want you trapped in the, the, the anger. He, he wants you free. I don't think he wanted Simon trapped. I think he wanted Simon to be freed of this. It's just that Simon believed, is baptized, and it said that he continued with Philip, so he's starting to be discipled. And yet, it's like in this moment, God's saying, yeah, but there's more to deal with. And he's ripping it back. Sometimes God mercifully just removes something from your life. I remember hearing years and years ago about a, a, a pastor shared his story of how he became a Christian. He was in college, joins a fraternity, and he said college for him was about two things, beer and babes. And so he kind of his, was top dog in his fraternity because he was great at both. He was on his way to becoming an alcoholic, and he's like, I'm surprised there aren't more kids out there in the world because of my actions. Then he became a Christian. God got the gospel to him. He heard it and he believed and he was changed. In an instant, he said his desire for beer just was gone. He no longer craved it like he did. Sometimes God just mercifully takes something from you. Sometimes he doesn't. Because that same pastor said the lust that he struggled with stayed. It was a battle for years to not see women as just some sexual conquest, instead to see them as people created in the image of God for whom Jesus died. That continued to beset him for a long, long time. And yet God wasn't done with him. That's what you need to hear. God does not want you trapped. Some of you you know he, he mercifully took something from you. Some of you, it's like he covered it for a time and now like Simon, he's like, all right, we're gonna pull the curtain back. Let's, let's, it's time to deal with this now. Because you see, God wants you free and sometimes the way he wants you to find that freedom is to go through the struggle of seeking him and trusting him. Galatians 5.1 says that it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. God longs for your freedom. But he wants to invite you in on the process. 
And that leads to the second thing that I want you to know, that if you do feel trapped, you need to know God has not given up on you. The very fact that God put the word repent on Peter's lips to Simon, that was an open door. If God had given up on Simon, why say repent? No, the very fact that Peter's saying, you need to repent, is God saying, come, let me free you. Give this to me. Confess it. Let's rip it back. Yeah, it's going to hurt. This is going to be uncomfortable. This is surgery without anesthesia. But this is necessary because I want to shape and, and mold you into the image of Jesus. So repent. Now, some people, they, they see Peter's words and they get stuck on that, that phrase, if possible. They start wondering like, oh no, God, God might not do this for me. Don't be scared of those words because this is God we're talking about. With God, all things are possible. And so take God at his word in 1 John 1, 8, when he says that if you confess your sin, he is able and just to forgive you of that sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Yeah, God, he wanted to change you, help you cross that line of faith to help you put your faith in Jesus. But he's not done. It is continuing to lay down, letting him do this deep work in you. He's not finished with you. He has not given up on you. So keep seeking him. Keep going after him. Let him in. Some of you know the uh, illustration of the uh, uh, butterfly. When a butterfly, uh, uh, the um, uh, caterpillar, go, builds its, its chrysalis, its cocoon, and gets inside, it, it, the transformation starts taking place. But then comes a moment where the transformation inside is done, but it now needs to emerge. And it has to work and struggle to break that chrysalis, to crack it open and to come out. Well, it turns out that if you decide to help the butterfly out, if you go in and you slice it, just to make it a little easier, the butterfly's wings will not be strong enough to be able to fly. It's the struggle that actually helps the butterfly. God, in his infinite wisdom, knows to how much to let you struggle. He has given you the Holy Spirit. If you're a follower of Christ, the Holy Spirit is in you. And so you have the power to emerge out of that cocoon. But he will make you stronger. And so if God mercifully just removes it from you, it's because he wants you to, to realize his power and his love for you. But if he hasn't removed it, it's because he wants you to come to him and to rely on him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul, in writing his letter to the Corinthians, says, hey, I, I don't want you guys to get fooled. <laughs> like, being an apostle, following, following God, do, being on these missionary journeys, this isn't easy. We're, we're not these awesome individuals. Like, this is hard. In fact, he says at one point, we despaired of even life itself. It was so difficult. They thought it's over. Like, this is going to cost us our lives. But then Paul goes on and says, but God allowed it so that we would rely not on ourselves, but on him. Some of you, in your battle, you've been trying to rely on yourself, and that is why you were so tired. God is inviting you to put your faith yet again upon him. I don't know why God do, is doing it in the timing he is. All I know is he's good, he loves you, he's for you, and it is for freedom that he sets you free in Christ. So come to him, seek him, because he has not given up on you. So Father, I just pray right now for uh, my brother or sister in Christ 
who is finding themselves changed by the gospel. They know these things mentally, but they're feeling unchanged in certain areas of their, their lives. And so, Father, I pray that right now you would speak to them, that you would either give them some clarity, you might give them some courage, you might give them some hope, help them to see that you are not done with them, that, that they are not defined by their weakest moment, they are not defined by this besetting sin, that instead they are defined by Jesus upon his cross and his resurrection. So, Father, through your Holy Spirit, I just pray right now you'd help your children who are struggling with this to just come to you, to give this to you yet again, and to trust that you will work. Father, I pray that they would also not seek to just go and do this in their own strength and power, that they'd first rely upon your Holy Spirit but that they'd also open up and rely on others. Father, you tell us that a healthy church bears one another's burdens. And so would you help us to open up to others, to one, two, three trusted people that we can share this with and they can come alongside of us and help us in this journey. And Father, help us to realize that even when we slip up, when we fall into those old patterns of thinking like Simon did, that your mercies are new every morning. We can begin yet again. So, Father, you are in control today. You'll be in control tomorrow. You know what has happened in our past. You know what is ahead in our future. So help us, Father, to trust you, to let you free us, to know your heart, to know your power, and to know that you can do what only you can do. And Lord, I pray for the person here that they have not put their faith in you. And yet, just like Simon, the gospel has come to them. For whatever reason, you wanted them sitting here today. You wanted them to be watching this online. You wanted them to hear this podcast later. And they're realizing that they are struggling. They are trapped. And yet you want to free them. And so I pray that right now, they would just give their life to you. That they would be like Simon. That they would believe Father, I believe you are the one who gives that belief. So right now, give it to them and give them the courage to, to bow down, to give it all to you, to surrender. Even knowing that there may be some things in your life that you don't take away, you're gonna work through those so that they may be shaped and formed into that image of Jesus. Father, whether we are right now putting our faith in you for the first time, or we've been following you for a long time and we find ourselves yet again saying the same prayer. Help my unbelief. God, I believe that you are such a forgiving God that if Jesus could tell us to forgive our brother 70 times seven, you are a God who can forgive us 70 times seven million and seven billion and seven trillion. Your cross is so powerful. So help us, Father, to not try to be our own judge to beat ourselves down for the ways we continue to slip up and fall into those old patterns. Instead, may we see ourselves the way you see us and see that you invite us in. You say to repent, to be forgiven, to come into freedom, to come into your presence, to allow your love and grace to lavish over us. So 
Father, in these next quiet moments of prayer, would you just hear the prayers of your people as they either put their faith in you for the first time or for the thousandth time. Because you love them, you are for them, and you can free them.